We are speaking with the one and only uh, Brian Ritchie of the band Violent Fams, uh, celebrating 30 years of Why Do Birds Sing? And as we say here in Montreal, uh, bonjour, Brian. Uh, how are you? Bonjour. Yes, very good. And 40 years of the band. So That is true. Yeah, 30 years of that album. So we were already veterans when we made it, even though it sounds like 30 years is a long time. Yeah, well, in fact, uh, talk to me about that era, because, you know, when we get to 91, 92, we all talk about how Nirvana changed everything. They, they, you know, they killed the hair metal stuff. It killed pop records. Did it, did it affect violent fans at all, or were, or were you still just doing what you do? Well, we affected them, because um, when we met Nirvana, right. they were opening up for us on our Australia. Australian tour which was their first time in Australia but we were already quite established there but it was a weird situation because uh, the promoter in Australia sent me this cassette of Nevermind and so this is the band we want to have open your tour and I listened to it and I said I still remember I said this is good they sound kind of like the monkeys <laughs> and uh, and they said well okay so that was approved for them to open up for us on the tour. But in the interim, between the time that I got that advanced cassette and the time that the tour actually happened, they had become the biggest band in the world. So here we have the biggest band in the world opening up for us, even though we were big, you know, they were still the biggest band in the world. So we said, hey, do you guys want to swap the bill around? No way. They, they didn't want to because they knew that we were better live band so um and they respected us so it was it was a good good way to to meet them and then later on we did uh tour in, in europe with them and, and we were the su clear support because you know they had expanded even further at that point so did they affect us they did because uh between green day uh, Nirvana and some of these other bands who, you know, let's face it, they, they all like the Femmes, um, even Blink-182. These bands that came, came along later, they helped us in the market because they made mainstream some of the stuff that we were doing as kind of an underground or more underground kind right. of thing. Yeah. So they, they just expanded the entire market for that kind of music. They really did. Um, talk to me just real quick about the uh, the songwriting process on your albums. You, you, Gordon does sort of everything, but I've always been one to say, well, you know what? That, that guitar rift and that bass line and that drum fill, those also are integral parts of songs. I mean, you know, you take Aerosmith's Sweet Emotion and you go, well, okay, Steven Tyler wrote it, but take out what Tom Hamilton's doing on bass. You don't have the same song. So that's always been sort of my issue with songwriting. It's like anybody who's played on it or contributed to me deserves a cut. Um, and I'm not trying to, to, to have you throw Gordon under the bus or anything, but, but talk to me about that because you look at your records and it's Gordon, 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 Gordon. You go, yeah, but there's more than just Gordon there. Well, he does, uh, he comes with the basic song, you know, or, or the idea for the song. And it's, if you look at the musical 
content of the songs is usually there's and even some of our best songs like i think added up is probably our best song it has two chords and it goes on for about six minutes so what are you going to do you're not just going to monotonously play two chords over and over again in a static kind of way so yeah it's true that the rhythm section contributes a lot to the feel and the arrangements of it or in the case of blister in the sun if you go to the ballpark you hear the bass and the drums and that's that's when people in the stands are going and this kind of stuff so it is a big part of the sound i agree with you and you can hear what it is because gordon's basically when he plays on one of our records if you just listen to his guitar and his, and his voice that's what what he would do if he was playing solo like if he was in a coffee house like right. where i met him and he was a solo performer and everything else that you hear like with the drums the bass or if we have other horns or things that's that's what the other musicians contribute so he's he's not like i can imagine that some band leaders like bruce springsteen he may tell the other guys what to do or give them a lot of ideas but gordon actually is very collaborative and he doesn't come in with any preconceived ideas about how the songs have to sound right and a really good example of that on why do birds sing is american music where he came in with he was doing like do you want american music like ramon's style groove right and then victor the drummer was like yeah, we got a lot of songs like this. Why don't we try it a different way? And then he came up with the idea of doing to shuffle kind of feel, which completely opened up the song to new interpretations. Right. And then when you listen to the things on the, especially on the recording, since we're talking about the box an album reissue, right? Uh, there are all these little bits and pieces that there wouldn't have been space for if we stuck with the, that initial groove. So, yeah, what's the basic song? And then what is the recording? And what is the actual impact of the song? It's it's heavily collaborative. See, and, and that's what I've always said. So when you see just the one guy's name, you go, oh, lyrics are not a song. I mean, a song is the whole thing. So, you know. Um, let me just quickly talk to you about this reissue. You, you, you do, of course, have the, the live show. You've got some remixes and you've got the, uh, the, the alternative takes. How does that get put together? Is that you and, and the rest of the guys that sit down and go through the vaults and find this? Or does the record company and say, come to you and say, hey, we got this stuff. We're going to put it out. What do you think? How, what was the process to assemble this? I don't think Victor had anything to do with this one. Okay. Um, I don't think Gordon had much to do with it, but the the record company decided that they wanted to put out that, that live uh, the the live concert yeah. is basically the the music that we did for a, a video that had already been or DVD that had already been released. Right. So they had that, and they knew that, that they wanted that, but then they also sent a list of the outtakes and things that they had uh, in the store in the storage. Uh, luckily, this stuff wasn't burned in that big fire that destroyed the universal so much right. catalog. Yeah. So they had some 
of those outtakes, which was great because uh, I had forgotten about some of them, or I and I, I knew of some of them, but could not find. I, I was looking for some of the recordings, and I couldn't find them in our vaults. Some of them, I talked to Gordon about one of the songs, which was Me and You, and he did not remember the song at all. And I sat down with the guitar and I sang it for him. And do you remember this song? He's like, I don't remember it. Luckily, Concord found that in the vault. So uh, those are some of the things that ended up on the reissue. So that was an example of a record company kind of saving the saving the day project because they had they had stuff that we didn't even have you know and and it's amazing uh just yesterday john bon jovi said we're putting out a box set we found 50 songs that we had forgotten about and i, and I <laughs> it's like how do you forget about songs like how how does that happen i guess you just write too many or or they're not good or, or like how, how do you forget <laughs> that you wrote something I don't get that. Well, you know, it, it's a very hectic lifestyle because True. in those days, like this is 1991, we were doing over 100 shows a year all over the world. And we didn't have time to think about stuff or keep diaries or any of that. So, and when, 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 when we made a record, we would just say, okay, what are the best 12 or 13 songs? I think it's probably was a mistake because we probably should have stuck with 10 songs on an album. <laughs> but, yeah. you, you know, at the time when CDs came out, of course, everybody had the expanded time and we all thought, oh, we can give the fans more. But really, nobody cares how long the album is. They just care about how good it is. You know, it's, it's still, funny we, you mention that, by the way, and I don't mean to cut you off, but I grew up in the 70s and Aerosmith, you know, albums were 28 minutes. And, the, and then we got to the CD time and everybody suddenly was doing 15 songs, 17 songs. And I was sitting there as a fan going, wow, this is great. And then I would listen to it and I was exhausted. And I'd go, "Ugh, enough already. No more Motley Crue. Shush. Yeah, there can be too much <laughs> of a good thing. Or yes. Tom Waits, you know, like putting out three CDs. So you've got... I mean, Tom Waits is great, but I'm not going to listen to him for four hours straight. Exactly. So, so, so it's it's nice that we sort of dialed it back and found that sort of happy place. You know, 50 minutes is good. That, that's that's enough. You know, um, the live show that's included in there. Talk to me about that, because of course I grew up with MTV and much music in Canada, and we all saw Blister in the Sun, and we saw a couple of the other stuff. But you weren't a video band; that wasn't really your thing. Uh, the live show was your thing, or at least that's how I perceive it. Uh, how important is the live show to what the fans do, or les femmes, as we say in Quebec? And and just how important is it to now have that represent uh, represent represented on the on the reissue? Well, live is our thing. Yeah. Uh, that particular show was. It was preordained that we were going to film that show and what happened was it was it, it was literally 130 degrees on stage so i'm still when i think about it You're still suffering a little bit traumatized by doing that gig because it was a feat of endurance but the band is very professional so it still sounds good and if you watch the video it looks like we're 
just having fun. Looks like you're on fire, literally. A lot of work. It's interesting that you mentioned much music because I've been looking all over the internet because they have a lot of footage of us. If it's Mm -hmm. in their archives, they have footage of us playing live, but not not live concerts, but they probably have that too. But they have other footage that we did in the studio or that we did in the art museum and interesting stuff, which I haven't been able to locate, but. Okay. Maybe, Maybe I can help you with it because they're they're relaunching much music as a video channel and getting rid of the whole lifestyle channel thing. So, oh. well, knows? somebody should look through their archives and see what they can find of us because I remember doing interesting things with them that I've never seen again. But if it's yeah. archived, it would be worth releasing. Yeah, much music was uh, was great, and not to to be Canadian for a second, but MTV was very, very much about the commercial and getting, you know, very commercial music. And, you know, much music was very different where it just wanted to show music and an artist. And, you know, the Canadian bands weren't big glamorous bands. So it was sort of a blue collar TV channel, if if that makes sense to you. Well, it was more about the music than MTV. Um, That's one of the reasons why we liked going on on much music well they would show our videos but then we would also do live little you know three or four song live performances which is much more interesting uh and again correct me if i'm wrong but uh, i never saw the band as being this one that wanted to have this crass commercialism and then when you get to the album birds you do culture club do you really want to hurt me which of course was you know uh, commercialism at its fullest Talk to me about that decision and your version because it's it's not a straight up cover. It's very interesting, and it's just like, wait a minute, Culture Club, really? Well, that was Michael Beinhorn, the producer, who yep. suggested that we give that a, a shot. And I think, well, he had uh, produced Chili Peppers, mm-hmm. and what did they do? H- Higher Ground, or what? What was it called? Stevie Wonder song that was a big hit for them, right? A higher love. Uh, Higher love. I think that's the one. You don't want to hear me sing, though. He had had a hit. (laughs) You don't want to hear me sing. So he probably thought this is a good strategy and suggested that, which which we're willing to experiment and take on an, an experimental process with anything we've done a lot of covers over the years usually for compilation albums or for tribute albums but sometimes we do it because we want to or because someone else suggests it in this case he suggested that song and we did it as an experiment gordon could not relate to the lyrics of the song the way they were so he rewrote some of the stuff it's not a complete rewrite but let's say it's a revision so he was happy because he had stuff coming out of his mouth that he could could tolerate. Right, get into. And then we just took it as a musical opportunity to do stripped out, psychedelic, weird. I mean, we, we didn't think it was commercial. We thought it was pretty neo-psychedelic. And uh, like there's 12-string guitar all over it, bazooki. And <laughs> I think there's the Mellotron. And, you know, like we just thought, let's have fun with this. And I think that that comes across 
and boy George liked our version a lot. He told us that he liked it. So I thought it was not, it, it wasn't a, a crassly commercial move. It was more like an experiment that turned out well and that we put it on the record. Yeah. And it's fun to listen to. Uh, and of course, uh, well, in fact, let me talk to you about working with Michael because he has, and, and by the way, the song was Higher Ground. I just looked it up. Um, um, talk to me about working with Michael because what he's done for Red Hot Chili Peppers and these other bands, he's he's really established a sound. He's really given them a direction. He, he's been terrific for them. He's sort of like, you know, the, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Mutt Lang or, or, or Kisses Bob Ezrin. Um, what did he do for you? Did you, did he come in there and say, this is my vision and how this goes? Or was it collaborative? Talk to me about working with him. No, it was the opposite really. Um, because he knew that the record company <clears throat> slash and Warners mm -hmm. had previously attempted to subvert the band's sound and make it more commercial. You know, they were saying, they would always say, oh, wow, Talking Heads are really popular. Why don't you try to be like the Talking Heads? That's one of the reasons why Jerry Harrison produced one of our records. And then they say, you too, can you try to sound like them? And we're, we're like, not really. Uh, well, R.E.M. is really popular. Are they friends of yours? Yeah, but we don't want to sound like them. And so, so he knew that we had this traumatic history but he actually really liked the way the band sounds, like the real femme sound. Right. So he did not try to uh, mold us in his own image, um, which was a good approach. In the end, there was some, some production on there that like you can hear on American music, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me, used to be. Some of the songs have added production, which added sophistication that that Michael contributed to. Some of it is just really raw, like the Femmes always sounded live. And he had the common sense not to try to, um, you know, put lipstick on a pig. <laughs> and is, uh, it was a good collaboration. Is that how you approach the, the recording process where you really want to be sort of live off the floor and not be one of these pro tool auto tuned uh, pitch corrected though i mean all that nonsense you just want to be the guys on the floor recording and let's go is, is that how for example how why do birds sing was that how it was put together yeah it was the, all the pre-production <clears throat> pre was just playing live in a room uh we didn't cut anything to a click i don't think i i, I doubt that we did um let me think of no it was live it was the basic tracks for live some some of the songs the whole thing was live That's the way and then other it. ones have select overdubs but just adding to the to what's already on the live track so um yeah that's that's our approach we we, we don't really consider ourselves like a pop crafts band People banned. So when you do hotel last resort and you have all the new modern technology available to you, you're still doing it in your style, that, that live thing. That album was all live except the actual title track, which we built in the studio. But 
but just to show how perverse we are, the, the basic rhythm of that was from a drum machine from the 1940s. Oh, wow. Way the before the Fairlight. A drum machine from the 1940s, which was, we didn't even know, we didn't even know that they had drum machines back then. So we used that as the, you, 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 I don't think you hear it on the recording, but that's what we, then Gordon overdubbed his stuff on top of that. Then I overdubbed. So that was, and then Tom Verlaine came in with the guitar. So that was, that was constructed in the studio, but the rest of the album was recorded live. See, and that, that's the way it should be. Um, let me just quickly touch upon your relationship with Gordon, because there was sort of that strange situation with the Wendy's commercial and the lawsuit. Now, we don't have to get into it. The story's been told a million times, but have you had a chance to repair that, or do you, do you sort of just go tour and do albums because that's the job and we get on with it? Or are you able to be friends and a band again say hey you know whatever it, it was 20 years ago forget it that was a long time ago and we had i guess about seven years when we didn't work together right and it was actually coachella yep. making asking us to reform and, and play at coachella which made us both think do we want to do this again and we both saw reasons to do it mm -hmm. you know just to see how things would go and since then things have been very amicable and uh, yeah we get along fine and we haven't had a we haven't had major conflicts like that uh, we still have some discussions about what right. to do next or how do we do this but it's not problematic like it had been in the past so yeah we we got over it. Yeah, I mean, you know, as we get older, you know, we just we, we move on. Uh, but but I I do I do want to ask you not about the Wendy's commercial, but you know, songs have been used of yours in soundtracks, like Blister goes into Gross Point Blank. What's the difference between putting it in a soundtrack and putting it on a, you know, thirty second commercial? Where is that line where you go? That's fine. That's meh. Where is that delineation for you? And why is there one? Well, that was the problem with me and Gordon is that we had different uh, philosophy about that. Right. To me, the song the song has a lot of meaning to people, whether it's yeah. Blister in the Sun or, you know, like I heard, what was it? I think it was the Stooges were on a, some sort of a commercial but it wasn't as bad as a burger commercial but it was still a commercial and i was i was confused by it you know maybe i'm i'm a hippie maybe i'm an old school <laughs> or something but to me it's just confusing whereas if it's in a movie that's realistic you know gotcha. like we, we had color me once in the crow and that was because somebody turned on the car radio and there we were on the radio this is realistic. Okay. So it depends. I mean, now I think a lot of bands will do anything to make money, but I mean, what would be next? Viagra commercial. Why can't I get just one fuck? You know, <laughs> it's like, you don't want people thinking in those terms. No, but, but I do want to take you up on that for just one second. Cause bands are doing all kinds of stuff for money now. 
but is that just because the landscape has changed? I mean, if you're in the 60s or 70s, you put out an album, you go on tour for two, three years, you sell the t-shirts, you sell the merch, you come home, and then you sit home for six months, and then you start all over again. We're not really in that situation anymore because YouTube and, and Spotify has so watered down the base that it's hard to find a band. It's hard to latch on to somebody new. So how do you sort of keep it viable? Because, I mean, you don't want to be doing a tour and then have to go go home and be, you know, a landscaper. Well, I, I do a day job. I do another job. And oh. that's, I'm, I'm a curator at a museum oh, in great. Australia. Oh, and I'm doing that work out here on the road. You know, I'm, I'm talking to my staff every day and yeah. So actually, yeah. you know, it's, uh, I thought it was, I mean, it's a very satisfying job also and very artistic and it's, it's still in the creative mm -hmm. field, but, uh, and I don't, I don't see any reason not to do both things. Oh, that's great. Just real quick. No, I landscaping, I... Like, for example, with the Minutemen, huh? uh, George Hurley, the drummer, he he would always, like, in between tours, he would go work construction. Really? Yeah. Well, well so I know, nothing, I know the... Nothing wrong with working. No, I, I know the uh, the lead singer of Accept uh, comes home and is a, is a professional uh, electrician, and it's just going, oh, okay. Um, what kind of museum are you creating, curating, I should say? Is it like the Picassos and stuff, or is it uh, wild animals? What's what? Because it's, it's called Mona Museum of Old and New Art in Tasmania, oh. and it's the largest uh, private museum in the Southern Hemisphere. Oh wow! It's mostly contemporary art, and also I run a huge music program. Like we have music, we have two or three sometimes four venues going in the museum every day with live music oh wow plus festivals wow. it's a massive job and it's a lot of fun are you artistic in that sense too do you paint and do you do all that stuff as well i did one of the album covers for the femmes freak magnet oh that's great um one thing i i i pulled out when i was doing the research here it says that you play the Sahu or the Saku Hachi, a Japanese bamboo flute. And first time I've ever heard that word and that name. Uh, how does one pick up the bamboo flute uh, expertise? <laughs> Was that something that your mom sort of said, hey, you can play piano or, or bamboo flute? And, <laughs> you know, my mom, my mom still doesn't understand that. Um, but <laughs> uh, I picked it up when I was living in New York City and it was it's related to Buddhism. So I was doing meditation and then I heard that there was this instrument that they use for the Zen meditation in Japan. And I thought, yeah, maybe I should gravitate towards a musical instrument form of meditation since I am a musician. And it actually worked out that way. Oh, that's great. And uh, of course, uh, we'll remind everybody that Why Do Birds Sing? The Deluxe Edition is out October 8th, which is, uh, well, in fact, uh, tomorrow. And uh, there we go. Fantastic. Merci, Brian, as we say in Montreal. That was great. Thank you. And uh, I have to say, uh, I, when I first heard Blister in the Sun years ago, that piqued my ears and my interest. And it, it was a pleasure to talk to you today.
pleasure was mine, and I hope we get back to Canada next year. Yes, please. I, I would love to see you in Montreal and or Ottawa, and let's get some. Uh, let's do another one of these. And, and thank you for your time today. Absolutely appreciate it. All right. See ya. Cheers. All right. Perfect. Let me stop the recording.